I told her that night, I said, you know what? I said, I've, I've got to try my best to get to England and actually hire John as a coach to try to improve my skills. I mean, you can work on your own and try to improve your own skills, but to go to that next level, you need proper coaching. It's like any sport, really. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, a look behind the scenes of the fly fishing world, featuring insight from guides and gear reps, conversation with resort managers, thoughts on entomology, discussions on fly patterns and destinations, and plenty of fish stories. Most importantly, it's an exploration of this lifelong journey we call fly fishing. Here is your host, Mark Hopley, with this episode of Fly Fishing 97. Welcome to this edition of Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Uh, today we've got on the program Todd Oshi. Now Todd is the current president of Fly Fishing Canada, competitive fly fisher, and has been involved with uh, Team Canada since 2005. Todd, thanks for coming on the program today. Well, thank you very much for having me on as a guest. I'm honored to be a part of this. Well, I appreciate that, and I'm sure you've got you're a wealth of information and knowledge. I can only imagine. So. I, before we get too much into Team Canada, the World Fly Fishing Championships, and all, all the good things you've been up to, um, I always like to start the program off by saying, okay, how did you get originally involved in, in the sport of fly fishing? Uh, actually, uh, for fly fishing, I'm relatively new by standards of a lot of people I've met. Uh, I only started fly fishing in 1994, um, fished as a since a small child, uh, typical sitting on docks with you know bread dough and wieners and all the fun stuff and worms. And eventually, uh, my wife and my kids got me a uh, fly tying and fly entomology course for Christmas one year, uh, which I took with my brother. And uh, after the first session of sitting in a classroom listening to the instructor at Michael and Young Fly Shop in Surrey, BC, talk about fly fishing. Uh, I was just intrigued. It was just like the first hour I was just being bombarded with this information about entomology. And I realized that a sport that I loved, which was angling, uh, there was a lot more to it with the fly fishing part of it. Uh, And again, it just was something that just intrigued me. And there's been no looking back. I've just stayed with fly fishing ever since I started doing it. And all of my other rods have either been given away or they're stowed away somewhere where uh, I can give them to someone eventually, hopefully. Did you get started um, tying flies uh, around the same time? Actually, <laughs> uh, funnily enough, uh, when I was uh, a young lad, uh, my father used to smoke and you know, sportsman cigarettes in Canada had this little uh, package that had these little pictures of classical flies on the back. I used to collect them off his packages because I thought it was kind of neat, but I never had a mentor who was a fly fisher, so I actually thought one day uh, I would try to tie my own flies when I was about nine or ten and I tied a fly up out of some of the craft feathers that my mother had in the basement uh, as good as I could copy uh, one of the flies and I went down to the creek where I used to sit and plunk worms uh, put my fly in the water and I was just so disappointed because it sunk as soon as it hit the water I I imagined they floated above the water Uh, and after the third dunking I actually caught a a beautiful cutthroat on it Uh, so again it was sort of an introduction to it just by my own experimentation but it never went further for about another maybe eight years uh, where I actually went on a fishing trip and dug through my father's tackle box and found a fly and unfortunately uh, not being that 
well-versed at tying knots. First drop into the water with this, uh, three fish attacked it, and I pulled it up, and the fly and the fish went flying through the air, and that was the end of it. But uh, once I started fly tying as an adult and realizing the satisfaction that comes with creating your own fly pattern or imitating one that's already existing and actually catching a fish on it, just added a whole new element and uh, excitement to to fly fishing for me. So so after I started doing that, I just became more and more of a student of fly tying, experimenting. Um, of course, and when the internet came really into its own, seeing patterns from around the world, that really intrigued me. And obviously traveling as a part of Team Canada to, to other countries, stopping at any shop in different countries uh, was just like a, a, a huge awakening, seeing patterns that... I'd never seen before or I hadn't seen in our local magazines. I was exposed to patterns that were super productive and we still haven't, hadn't even used them back in British Columbia or Canada for that matter at that time. But bringing them home and having a chance to tie and replicate them and use them on my own home waters uh, completely added that element of surprise and excitement to go to a lake I fished for years and try a a pattern that's come from Poland, maybe, or from Scotland or Ireland. Uh, to me, that was just sort of like uh, an ongoing, almost like an addiction. I wanted to travel more. I wanted to see more patterns. I wanted to see what people were using in other countries and bringing those patterns home. And on the flip side, bringing Canadian patterns to these countries uh, was was pretty exciting, too, to be able to sit in a boat with a coach or a guide or, or a mentor and pull out one of our favorite Canadian patterns that they've never seen and just to see them kind of chuckle at it and say, well, that looks very nice, but it doesn't really work here. And then to pursue to catch a fish, a cast at sometimes, you know, it, it's just something that's exciting. And as a fly tire, most of the fly tires can appreciate the fact that uh, when you do travel, you're seeing different materials and different concepts in the way they tie and, and design their patterns. So again, it's it's really interesting to bring that home with you and try to incorporate it into your own patterns that, that we use locally and try to improve them. It's amazing to me how much of a global activity, global sport fly fishing is. And you of all people would know that better than anybody being so so heavily involved with Team Canada. Yeah, it, it is. And it's it's great. Um, you know, not, I realize that competitive fly fishing is not for everybody. I never try to push it on to people. And I, I'd be the last one to argue its merits to someone who's not a believer in it. But uh, I just feel that it has something to offer for people that, you know, maybe enjoy that. I mean, we all We've all done it where you've gone to a lake or a river and with a couple of buddies and the biggest fish, you know, he gets a buck or two or maybe the, a few beers or, or something. But uh, to some degree, we're all somewhat competitive against each other. Um, I don't think fly fishing in the purest form is really that competitive. It's more man against nature or the fish. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I've enjoyed about the competition aspect is it's allowed me to really perfect what I've been doing. Uh, to put, put me up against other people to see what is more effective or what is less effective. Uh, for, for that part of it, uh, I sort of compare it to being a uh, mechanic on a NASCAR or indie uh, pit crew compared to a mechanic who works in a dealership. The dealership mechanic is just used to um, keeping things running smooth, make them run as good as they can, and he's been doing the same thing for years, but the Indian and NASCAR mechanics, they're pushing it. They're trying to make 
the peak performance they can get out of the, that vehicle and try to improve it and, and really, you know, make, make it more effective. But that's what I think with the competitive fly fishing community, what they've been doing is they've been really trying to drive and make it more effective on how many fish you can catch, you know, and that, that information is being shared to, to the masses through the Internet, uh, through magazines and books. Uh, a lot of great books have been written by a lot of uh, competitive anglers like George Daniels, Devin Olson, and a, and a lot of the other people that have been involved in the sport. And even if you're not a competitive angler or it's not something that you want to pursue, it's well worth your time to take a chance to or the opportunity to read and understand what, what they're learning mm-hmm. uh, because you can you can apply that to your recreational angling I know that there's a lot of people that I know that, that will come out to some of the clinics I put on, and they'll tell me that, you know, look, I, I don't want to be a competitive angler, but I want to see what it is you guys are doing or what the excitement's about. And quite often after the presentation, you know, some of them are, are persuaded to try it. Some of them will still stay stay away from it, but I think they can all appreciate that there's some little tips and little, you know, tactics that they maybe neglected or maybe hadn't considered that overall can improve what they're doing and, and add to their enjoyment. So that's what it's all about in my mind is it's about enjoying the sport of fly fishing. Uh, the competitive part is just an aspect of it. It's not the sport itself. It's just something that allows a venue for kids to uh, be involved, adults, uh, even seniors or even handicapped. Uh, we have uh, women that come out to our events and, and girls. Um, it's all about, again, just having people come together like a great big community or a club and uh, have a chance to share and sort of support each other. That That's basically, in a nutshell, for me, what competitive angling is about. That's extremely well verbalized. I, I, I love the NASCAR versus... Uh you know, shot mechanic. That that was a really good analogy. And the one thing that I, I, I do realize is that you guys are doing things today that I'll probably start doing five years from now. So maybe, maybe you can throw a few flies our way or just a little bit of input on some. I don't mean to um, dig too deep off the, off the top here, but I'm curious about, like, how did you get into this world of competitive fly fishing to begin with? Well, um, I've, you know, to be honest with you, anyone who knows me on a personal level, knows I'm not a competitive person. Um, even through school, I, I wasn't the kid who wanted to go play the high school sports. Uh, I still am not really a person who really likes to play team sports because uh, I always had that fear of letting others down due to my own abilities or not being a complete total jock, or <laughs> if you would call it. Mm-hmm. But for me, um, fly fishing was an individual sport. And that's what really attracted me to it was that it was just me against the fish. There was nobody else involved. Uh, There would be fishing companions. But uh, in the sense of the the competitive sport, one thing that attracted me to it was the fact that we fish in teams. So uh, the first event I ever really went to was uh, a fundraiser for BC Children's Hospital uh, in Kamloops at the Trojan, Trojan Pond. Uh, and that event's been going on for years, and it still exists. But it's just a, where you fish with a partner. Um, I went to it the first time with with a partner. Uh, I was just honored and just totally starstruck to be on the same water with people like Brian Chan, Phil Rowley, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and to see like the Freshy Brothers. 
and just see other, you know, celebrities that I'd looked up to and still do. But to be able to share the same water with these people, it was just such a treat. But once I got there and actually started fishing, I just started to realize how, how fun it was to uh, see the camaraderie that goes on with this sport. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily about uh, who can beat who. Uh, it's more about everybody having a, a good time. And, and majority of these, there's usually a cause or a charity that's involved with most of our competitions that the, any profits go to. There, There is no... Uh, money prize at any of these events that I participate with or, or organize. It's just basically any friend, funds that come out of it goes back to a worthy cause. So for me, that was sort of a bonus to be a part of something that raised money for a good cause and people were having a good time. Uh, but once I competed at the Trojan Pond, um, I, I just wanted to keep coming back because I just realized how fun it was. And again, it was a, it was more the, the sense of community. Uh, typically, as fly fishers, when we go either to a river or to a lake, you might see people in the parking lot, and if you're fishing in a boat, maybe you're in the boat with one buddy. But uh, for the most part, my sort of exposure to fly fishing was float tubes, wading and fishing by myself on rivers. So I really didn't have a mentor or someone to, to fish with until, you know, you developed a sort of friendship or group of, of buddies that you would go fishing with. But I found with the, the competition setting, it kind of forced you to fish with other people. Uh, mm-hmm. And that kind of helped helped me to learn a lot quicker. Like the the learning curve, you'll hear other people who I think you've had a few on your show will tell you, but the learning curve is so steep uh, with fly fishing. If you're competitively fishing, you be you're exposed to a, a wide array of of techniques, patterns, uh, just different tactics. Uh, for me, I've been fortunate to fish with numerous teams. Uh, internationally, nationally, and just regionally. Uh, but what it does, it allows you to work and learn how to how to cooperate with other anglers in the sense of trying to understand the mystery of you know the, maybe where the fish are, the depths, uh, or what they're biting on, or which retrieves. So again, it was just a way to gather information a lot more effectively and a lot quicker. Uh, but it also allowed me to understand how other people you know, approach the same water I would fish on. So I always find it interesting and fascinating after an event to talk to other competitors to find out what they were doing that was working or maybe that wasn't working. Um, for me, I find sometimes uh, it's not all about winning. Some of the, my greatest days on the water and time spent fishing have been on those fishless days where you're not catching anything. Uh, and I say that in the sense that it forces me to reevaluate what I'm doing. It forces me to rethink and to experiment. I mean, anyone can catch fish on an easy day. And really, everybody has fun with that. I have as much fun as anyone else on those, you know, double digit days. But uh, it's the days when the fishing is tough for me that I enjoy the most, because that's when you really have to push yourself and try to try to figure out the mystery. And, and that's what intrigued me about fly fishing in the first place was that there were so many different insects, uh, food items, and trying to understand the, the behavior of the trout and trying to unravel that mystery. That, that was what attracted me to fly fishing. And again, it continues on with the competitive end of it. it but the added advantage is that there's numerous people on the same water. So you can really afterwards sit down and talk together. And most of the competitors that I know are very open um, they'll talk about what worked, what didn't work, you know, and again, it, it's, it's just kind of fascinating to see those statistics come out after you've had a day on the water. Whereas typically when I fished before I competed, 
it would just be me coming off the water and just going home and reflecting on what I did or what I should have maybe have done or what I didn't do. Uh, but in this case, the learning curve is so much steeper because you have so much information coming into you. Uh, also, with, with the competitive aspect, uh, you're forced to quite often fish waters that you wouldn't necessarily fish recreationally. Uh, with, with us on rivers, we're typically drawn a beat, they call it, which is a, a certain length of water that's pegged at the top and the bottom. That's your section you have to fish for a period of time, usually up to uh, three hours at a maximum. Mm-hmm. But what it does is it, it makes you take that stretch of water and try to maximize your potential out of it rather than recreationally you would probably just walk by those spots that don't look so fishy and you would just keep walking to the next honey hole to the next honey hole uh i've, I've fished with a lot of people and tried to, to coach them uh and have told them during practice and when they're trying to train is that you've got to fish that tough water that water that you look at you would normally walk by spend time on it because i mean you go to uh, the, to these productive areas and uh try to fish those, you know, you know, you're going to catch something. But for me, the greatest satisfaction comes out of fishing a spot where people wouldn't necessarily fish or that I would normally kind of almost write off. Uh, there's areas that, you know, there's no fish, but it's those tougher spots, those, those hard to reach lies. Uh, that, that's what I look for when I go fishing. Um, even when I fish with my, some of my buddies, I'm happy to be the last guy going through a stretch of water because I want to fish over pressured fish. I want to fish over areas where I know that they've already put some pressure on. But that's sort of the mentality I've developed as a competitive angler is I, I want want to work harder for the satisfaction of catching those fish rather than just, you know, walk around in cherry picking spots. So again, for me as a fly fisher, that that was part of the progression. I mean, when I first started fly fishing, it was all about numbers. I wanted to catch lots of fish. Then it was more about, okay, I want to catch bigger fish. And then I wanted to catch lots of bigger fish. And then I kind of did full circle. I went back to, okay, I just want to catch uh, a fair number of fish that are decent. Um, but with competitive fishing, uh, a lot of the times our minimum size can, can be as short as, you know, 10 or 12 inches. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas a lot of people will go to the water and they'll just be trying to get that trophy fish. Uh, that, that's great. I enjoy that too, going to some lakes where I can go and fish and know you're going to catch three to five pounders. But I, I personally am just as happy to go to a lake and catch a dozen or two dozen, you know, uh, 10 to 12 inch fish. It doesn't necessarily make the whole experience, uh, that much better if they're all big fish. Uh, but you know, I always use that sort of, uh, saying that I've kind of used is that, you know, for me, it's not about measuring the quality of the fish by pounds or inches it's about the you know journey and experiences that led to that encounter where you actually catch that fish so that's that's well put yeah and like i said i'm not necessarily a trophy hunter i've been to areas like new zealand and and all throughout the uk where there's you know great reservoirs and rivers that have you know magnificent fish but uh for me it's just about enjoying the experience I, i mean this past summer i was in ireland for the commonwealth championships and some of the beautifulest fish I caught of the year were, you know, only 10-inch brown trout in this one river. And again, it, it for me, it's not going to be that the biggest fish I caught of the year was the best. Some of these 10-inch or 12-inch brown trout I caught, those those are the ones that stick in my mind. So again, it sort of taught me to appreciate all sorts of fish, not just the biggest ones, but, you know, to enjoy whatever you you can encounter. 
That makes a lot of sense. We're chatting today with Todd Oshi from Maple Ridge, British Columbia. And I noticed that you guys, you guys took the silver medal at the Commonwealth Championships this year, did you not? Yes, we did. We were very fortunate uh, and very appreciative that we could could uh, achieve that goal. Uh, that was uh, the second medal. Uh, the last Commonwealth two years ago uh, was in uh, Mont-Tremblant, Quebec. That was uh, the year when we won the gold medal, our team, uh, which was the first team medal for Canada in its history since uh, 1987 uh, when it was founded. But uh, this this past summer's medal in Ireland was very significant in the fact that it was the first international medal on foreign soil, or waters, I guess, in this case. <laughs> but it was also a back-to-back medal for Team Canada. Uh, so again, we were just excited to be part of that history-breaking uh, uh, event. And again, for for me, when I go to these events, um, it's a total team mentality and total team uh, achievement that I'm looking for. The individual stuff is not why I go to these events. It's more about uh, working with five or six other individuals on my team and trying to do our best, especially when you're representing your country. Todd, if you, if you had to pick one or two people that have been influential in your fly fishing and maybe you've learned the most from, and I'm sure it's a long, long list, but could you, could you single out a couple of people? Uh, yeah, I, I would first off have to recognize uh, John Horsey of uh, England, of Team England, one of their uh, captains for many years. Ago. Uh, he, he was one of the biggest inspirations for my lake fishing. Um, I met him at the Port- in Portugal in 2006 at the World Championships. Uh, he sat on the bus with me for about 10 minutes driving up to this uh, one lake up in the high high altitude area of Portugal. And in that 10 minutes, he just just pumped me full of so much information. I was like a sponge just sitting there, and he was just telling me all sorts of things. Uh, when we got to the lake, we both fished against each other, and uh, I ended up, I think it was like fifth place in that session, and he was sixth. And I shook his hand and just thanked him. I said, you know what? I said, that 10 minutes with you on the bus taught me more than I've learned probably in the last last 10 years. I was just over overwhelmed. And I realized how much information that and how far more advanced they were in the United Kingdom than we were in Canada at that point. Right. So I, I talked to him and uh, my wife was there at that event at the World Championships. And I told her that night, I said, you know what? I said, I've I've got to try my best to get to England and actually hire John as a coach to try to improve my skills. I mean, you can work on your own and try to improve your own skills, but to go to that next level, you need proper coaching. It's like any sport, really. Uh, so in this this sense, I spent the, the next summer, I went over there for, uh, I had uh, three days with John Horsey in a boat. And uh, he taught me so much. Um, and again, I really have to give a lot of credit to him. I'd fished with people like Brian Chan and Phil Rowley, uh, great mentors, and fished on a team with them where we won a gold medal at nationals on a team I put together in captain. But uh, mm-hmm. I was learning stuff that I'd already learned somewhat in in my progression as a Canadian angler. But hearing how they fished in different parts of the world, like with John Horsey, that, that was a huge, huge step in my development. Uh, I did the same thing with the river aspect of my fishing. Uh, uh, when I went to the World Championship in 2005 to Sweden, uh, our group, Team Canada, went to the river to practice. We caught fish 
in this one run uh, that we chose to practice on, but it was probably more like one fish each. So we had about five or six fish between the five of us after fishing it for a half hour. Just as we got towards the bottom of this run, a van pulled up and it, there was a Czech Republic flag in the window. So we real, realized it was a Czech team. So we stopped our captain said, Hey, you know what? Let's just watch and see what they do. Well, they walked down these five anglers went through the same water. We just fished. They must've caught like 20 or 30 fish in about a fraction of the time. And quite often uh, doubles in the areas that we had already fished and couldn't even pull out one fish. So again, realizing that, that they were at a total different level than what we were at. Um, I, I went the next uh, spring to the Czech Republic and took a master class with Yuri Klima, who was the, uh, the captain of their team at that time. And uh, he, was, he was very open again to teach me and the rest of the students uh, the, the art of Czech nymphing. Mm. Uh, and that made a huge difference again for me, just recreationally and competitively. It really gave me a step up or edge um, over other competitors because I was learning a more modern techniques that were proving to be more effective on the world scene. But back in Canada, it's sort of, uh, you know, you, you kind of learn what's out there. It's like that, uh, you know, that scenario where it's like supply and demand. They, they only supply what people demand and people only demand what you supply. We were sort of caught in a loop. So, But having that exposure to that information uh, between John Horsey t- learning how to fish locks down in lakes and learning from Yuri Kalima how to fish the rivers. Uh, I kind of devo- developed uh, some seminars and clinics that I was putting on to try to share this information and writing for like the Canadian Fly Fisher magazine. And I'm not a writer by trade and far from it, but just wanting to share information that I had to try and help other anglers or fly fishers that I knew that this this would be valuable information to. If you were to talk to the average angler that maybe is just looking to catch a few more fish on Sunday, if you will, what's what's a piece of advice you could give that would directly help their success rate? Um, depending on if they're fishing rivers or lakes, but overall, um, best piece of advice I can give them is to uh, do their homework. Uh, if you're going to a river or a lake, uh, you definitely want to know what species you're targeting. Uh, you want to know what sort of hatches or what food items that the fish would be, uh, you know, keying in on at that time. And then just perfecting your your overall angling skills, uh, whether it comes to casting or learning techniques um, like, you know, dry fly fishing, check nymphing or swinging wets. Uh, all that comes together. But if you're just wanting to go out and catch fish and have fun, I always recommend that people, if they're not familiar with areas, to spend time on the internet, the forums, or a great resource to find out information, or stop at the local shops. Usually if you buy a flyer or two, the owners will be very open to try to share with you and give you some sort of tips. Um, so again, I always try to make a, a visit to a fly shop in that area where I'm visiting, just so that I can get some local information. But, but overall, I think it comes down to just like any sport is putting in your time and, and learning different techniques and not just getting stuck on one certain aspect of fly fishing, but trying to embrace the whole sport at, at, and as far as trying to uh, learn how to fish it at different times of years, um, where the fish might be. Uh, that's all part of the science behind it. But again, it's just, uh, trying to read and understand more about the manner and behavior of the fish. That's what's going to help you overall in the long run. 
You know what I'm really curious about is, okay, so say your home waters, you know inside out, you know them well, you know this certain strain of rainbow has these tendencies. So all of a sudden you're on a stream in Italy. Is it all out the window? Is is a rainbow a rainbow a rainbow? Or Yeah, to some degree a rainbow is a rainbow. I, I've fished them in, in rivers and lakes around the world and flies at work at home will work there. Uh, there are flies that are more effective. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is that in Canada, we're, we're blessed with the fact that we have an abundance of wild fish. Um, they stock them to help augment the population to to make it more, I guess, easier for novices to catch. But in these other countries, uh, really, they they are just used to fishing for stocked fish for for a lot a large part of it. But if you're trying to uh, fish for stocked fish, it's going to be different patterns that we would use for for wild fish to some degree. Uh, so again, um, one of the big problems that I see with people, especially competitors, is that they they research and they um, they come up with techniques and patterns that they see in different parts of the world. And through the internet, we have access to a, a wide variety of different techniques and patterns. Uh, but what it comes down to in British Columbia, a lot of our lakes, the fish are pretty much wild fish. They're put in as fingerlings or smaller fish, and they develop proper eating habits where they're eating, you know, insects and uh, figuring out the hatches of what's happening and knowing when to key in on the food. But in in some of the areas like in Europe, I've noticed is that these fish have been fed pellets for the most part. So, uh, you know, when you go to fish for them, they're really not that educated. Uh, I think one of the worst scenarios I saw was fishing in Scotland on one lake where as I'm fishing in a bay, this boat is motoring around the lake. And I asked the, the ghillie that I was fishing with, uh, who was coaching me, I said, uh, what is that boat doing? Because I could notice the driver doing something quite odd. Well, he was just scooping out fish and just dumping them throughout the lake as he's driving around. And the fish that we were fishing over had only been in the lake maybe for a week or two. And he said, by, by the end of the next week, they'll all be fished out. So, so again, these fish are fish that are just looking for pellets. Um, they really couldn't understand what a chronomid is to some degree because they've been raised in pens or in nets in, within the lake. That's a little more natural for them to eat something that might come through the pen. But uh, for the most part, um, in Canada, I think we, we've got that sort of mentality of trying to figure out the hatches on lakes. Uh, I know when we went to uh, Finland for the World Championship, our Canadian team kind of struggled. The first day on practice, we were scooping up, uh, you know, insect samples, trying to figure out what sort of insects were in the lake so we could imitate the food sources. But it all came down to knowing where the fish were dumped when the lake was stocked. So (laughs) it wasn't really as technical as we put the effort into. But we do notice that when you go to some other countries, even the rivers, they're they're stocked. So these fish really aren't educated on what a proper uh, food item could look like. So again, so... You know what I I think that speaks to, too, um, Todd, is the fact that blobs and boobies, like what's a blob? Maybe it's a pellet. Yeah, I think I agree, too. Um, One of the things that I I see is that people try to legitimize a blob and they'll compare it to Daphnia and they'll just, you know, to some degree try to make it justified that what they're using is still, uh, in the sense, imitating food. But I know in the UK, a lot of times they'll just say that it's just sort of an attractor that the fish will take out of aggression or maybe recognizing it as a pellet or something they're not even aware of, uh, but they'll, they'll attack it. It could look like the egg of 
another fish or something. But but overall, the the blobs uh, are effective in in every lake I fished, even for our wild fish in British Columbia. I think they're intrigued by it. It's, it's more of an attractor pattern in my mind than anything. But to try to compare it to Daphne, yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a stretch in my mind. I've never seen them clump that thick yeah. together, but. Uh, yeah, I'm with you on that. <laughs> and you don't, you don't, here's something too that I always think of too in a lot of the stocked lakes and some of the wild lakes that we fish. And you probably don't use a lot of indicators in your competitive fishing, but those strike indicators, it's amazing how, how many times a fish will come up and take that indicator. They will. Uh, I've seen that too. Um, uh, you know, obviously we can't use them in our competitions. Um, in British Columbia, recreationally wise, we can only use a single fly, but I know in other parts of Canada and in other parts of the world, They'll, they'll actually use a fly that's going to suspend it, uh, you know, say a chronomid or a leech or something below it. And quite often they'll catch fish on that too. But, you know, sometimes they use cork or wool on the top and fish will come up and try and bite it. I mean, again, it just sort of shows that they're not that picky. I've seen even, uh, you know, fish going after cigarette butts as somebody carelessly left it laying on the water top. Uh, surface of the water but again so i think fish are just sort of opportunistic if something is close by and they think it's a food item much like in a river they'll they'll mouth it and they'll spit it or reject it if it's not going to uh, appeal to their senses mm-hmm. yeah it's it's crazy isn't it it's and like you say where those fish are raised probably pay, plays a, a huge role in that and if you think of a fish that's raised in a hatchery like you say it's not seen chronom it's not seen uh scud swimming around it's it's seen pellets so it's going to think differently that, that's right, exactly, and that that's where it becomes uh, critical is to to understand that so that you can actually experiment with that as you're angling, whether it's recreationally or competitively. Uh, you really have to give a lot of thought to what what you're using. I mean, fly fishing can be as complex or simple as an angler wants to make it. Uh, some some fly fishers are happy just trolling around a dock Spratly or a carry special their whole life, and that's all they'll carry in their box, but. Uh, for for myself and for the majority of my friends, I know that we just find the excitement of of experimenting with patterns. Even if I'm catching a lot of fish on a pattern, uh, I'll, I'll change. I, I don't want to sit all day and catch a bunch of fish on the same pattern. I want to see if one pattern is more effective or less effective. Uh, yeah. What I used to do a lot with my my children when I would fish with them is uh, in a boat is I would if I started catching fish. I would actually hand the whole setup and rod to my, my son or my daughter and just have them carry on. Then I would experiment um, because I always feel that when you're catching fish, that's the time to experiment. If there's nothing happening, nobody's catching any fish. Uh, you can see other anglers aren't, aren't uh, having bent rods. That's not the time in my mind to experiment. Uh, what I try to do is my approach is, is to use a tried and true pattern that I know should be effective. In, in my research, I know that the fish should be keying in on it. I'll fish it, and if there's nothing happening, um, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of stay with it, but maybe play with play around with the depths. Maybe use a faster sinking line, or count longer and let it sink down deeper, or raise it up higher in the water column. But as far as um, fishing with my kids, the great advantage was that they'll do whatever I tell them to do. So uh, you can use that to use as your gauge to see whether what you're doing is more effective or, or less effective. So. It, in my progression as a, as a competitive angler, uh, it's been very helpful even to have uh, someone in the boat with you to try to experiment and see how you can make your catch rate increase or, uh, or you know, even just your level of enjoyment of angling in general. How often does speed play a role 
in competitive fly fishing as far as changing quickly or reacting to what's going on? I think it's critical when you're fishing in a competitive uh, atmosphere to be very efficient and manage your time. When you consider even just using, a, say, a, a medium or a slow-sinking line compared to a fast-sinking line, if you're sitting and counting down and waiting for your fly to reach the proper depth where the fish are more active, uh, you could waste in each cast up to you know 10 or 10 or 15 seconds. Doesn't seem like a lot, but when you compile that over a period of of you know an afternoon or or a morning session, you know you could be wasting up to half an hour of of your time by not effectively fishing because you're not willing to change. So um, the key is, is I always feel is that you have to adapt your conditions. I think the more successful competitors are the ones that that realize that and they do adapt and change. I've been in the boat with with other competitors where they can watch and they they can see what I'm doing and you're you're out fishing them significantly and they they're looking at and they're thinking gee maybe I should change my line and I'm just you know trying to coach them at the same time once you know you have a lead on them of course but trying to help them and make sure they're having a good time too but sometimes they'll they'll spend too much time and effort thinking about it rather than doing it whereas the more effective <laughs> anglers and competitors will do it rather than think it's the same thing that I used to, for example, like when you're when you're nymphing in water uh, rivers, as you're doing the drift and you're watching your cider um, and you're thinking a fish might have might have taken your fly. I always say that by the time you see that indicator pause and you think was that a fish, by the time you say was that's that's too late. So <laughs> you you really have to think and react quick. The more effective people, especially on rivers, uh, they it's sort of like second nature, or as they say, it's sort of like uh, that sixth sense where you realize that something is happening and you react. So again, it's very critical that you don't become too relaxed and uh, get into that robotic stage where you're just going along with the flow and you're expecting something to happen because if that's your approach, if you're only going to give 90% of, of your effort, you know, there's 10% potential that you're missing out of. So I always feel that you have to give 100%, whether it's recreational fishing or competitive. Uh, when I'm on the water, I give 100% the whole time just so that I can make sure that when I leave the water, I don't have any regrets uh, in driving home, kicking myself, thinking I should have tried this or tried that. You strike me as uh, as the type of guy that does that in, in, in all aspects of life. Well, I try to. I think a big part for me, uh, advantage was being in the martial arts uh, in my younger days. Uh, mm-hmm. It taught me discipline and self-discipline especially, but it, it, it sort of makes you approach things differently, just having that sort of uh, upbringing of, of realizing that, you know, you, you should push yourself and try to maximize your potential. How much uh, time do you spend at the Vice? Uh, I spend a fair amount. Uh, when I go to an event, I try not to spend time at the Vice. I know the last two North American Lockstyle Championships, uh, I was fortunate to be the individual gold medalist at both of those. And talking to other competitors afterwards, and even last night at my fly tying night that I run uh, once a month, uh, listening to other competitors talking about how much time they spent at the vice and being up to like two in the morning tying. And uh, they just assume I'm doing the same. I said to them though, uh, last night, I said, you know what? I said, the last two North American lock style championships, I never tied a single fly. <laughs> and they're like, you're, you're serious? I said, yeah. I said, you know what? Uh, because I think what comes with, with time and putting more time in the water, same thing recreationally or, or competitively is you, you develop that short list of flies. You know what your go-to flies will be. 
Uh, sure, I carry boxes and hundreds and hundreds of flies in my boat uh, with me, less less so on the river, but I want to have flies with me in case something isn't working or in case my boat partner has something that I see that's working, so I, I'm not going to be without, but I typically only have one box of flies, and that's my go-to flies. Those are the ones that I'll use, so when I when it comes to fly tying, I typically will sit down before an event, maybe uh, a month before, and I'll sit down and I'll tie enough flies so I'll have enough for myself and for my five or four teammates so that we're not going to have to waste time during the event tying, whereas I'd rather spend that time, you know, evaluating or researching where where I'm going to fish. So uh, I think it's important to get that balance of prepared preparedness and also putting in your, your due diligence of ensuring you have enough flies. But uh, when I do tie at, a, at an event, I like to tie just more for like relaxation. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. that I'm tying because I'm panicking. I need this, I need that. So I, I typically will have the flies that I know should work. Uh, we always, as a team, come across a few patterns that we realize we need and we try to split up the tying assignments and do what we can. But my, my sort of philosophy is that it's not a good thing to be sitting around the vice tying to late hours at night because it's just fly fishing competitively or even recreationally for that matter. Uh, I always consider it that you need to have a clear mind. Uh, if you're mm-hmm. exhausted or if you're not, not eating right or even dehydration, that's a huge, huge thing during the day in the boat or on a river. Uh, you're exerting so much energy, just the warmth or the heat of the day, uh, you're dehydrated. When you're dehydrated, your brain does not function right. Like, trust me, I'm sure that anyone who's an athlete or runs marathons, they'll they'll testify to that. So what I try to do is I try to ensure that I keep enough water on me. Uh, I really load up with water before I go out in the morning, so I make sure that I'm not going to start out dehydrated. Uh, but I do find that in the case of some some summertime type river or lake competitions, if you're really exerting yourself that when you start getting dehydrated, yeah, you, you don't think proper. Um, and I, I can yeah. sense when that's happening by the time you're dehydrated, it's too late to do much about it. So it's about being prepared ahead of time. But, uh, it, there's a lot of things that you can do. A lot of guys use electrolytes and everything else, but I just honestly think water is the best, um, solution to, to, to keep hydrated properly. Uh, we also, uh, for our Commonwealth, in 2016, I uh, introduced to our team the uh, Life Straw. I don't know if you've used that or not, but that it's, no. it's basically uh, it's available on the internet. A lot of outdoor stores carry it now, but it's, it's just basically a straw that you can carry in your backpack or your vest pocket. You pull it out, and you, it's got a built-in filter, and you can just drink water right out of a lake or right out of the river. Um, really. It's 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 a great thing to keep you hydrated. But if you're going to carry bottles of water, you're not going to do it on a river. Most guys will carry one, but one is not enough for you for an entire day. Uh, so I mean, just having resources that are going to help you to stay, uh, you know, mentally alert. And again, water is a, is a huge huge part of competitive fishing or any sport that real serious athletes realize it, but a lot of the novices just sort of write it off and just think, well, I'll get something to drink afterwards. But uh, with the competitive type atmosphere, people tend to panic and that's when you need to really think. So by, again, by having your mind clear and your body conditioned and, and prepared for it, 
it'll allow you to actually get through that and your thought process will be a lot more sharp and, and proper uh, in your ability to try to evaluate what you should be doing or what you could be doing. We've all had those pounding headaches after after being dehydrated and spending time on the water. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm just curious too, if you were to maybe pick one or two patterns, like in the world of competitive fly fishing over the last few years that may have come along and, and maybe changed the game for you, is there any, you know, without giving away the box, is there any, any patterns that come to mind? Um, yeah, there's a lot of different patterns. Um, if if I were to look in my box, uh, first thing I would see a lot of is is like Czech nymphs, of course. Um, just the design of them, I've, they've sort of evolved from the typical curved sort of scud hooks to uh, jig hooks now. Uh, but uh, again, just having uh, these patterns that have been designed to be very slender and very uh, fast sinking with tungsten or lead underbodies uh, and a lot of wire wraps on them. Uh, that that was a big game changer. I think the competitive world uh, sort of brought about beads on patterns. That was sort of something that was developed through the competitive community because, as you know, um, in our case, we can't use split shot. We can't use strike indicators in the sense of uh, foam or cork type or, or wool. But um, for using uh, patterns that are designed to replace that, the beadhead nymph uh, kind of evolved out of that, but they've gone even further with it. So again, the the Czech nymph uh, sort of allows you to get get down fast and keep your fly down, and uh, very effectively cover the water. Uh, for lakes, there's been a lot of patterns that have come out. Uh, the the blobs and the boobies, of course, uh, they're kind of notorious for being uh, fish catchers. Uh, some competitions actually ban some of those because they just feel that it's uh, not necessarily great for the fish. I, I know that the problem with with blobs and boobies, more so in the case of boobies, that the fish tend to swallow them deep. Uh, and I yeah. don't think that's a great thing either because fish mortality goes up when they start hooking them in the gills and they bleed out. But if you're going to use patterns like that, the only way I'll fish them is if I retrieve them at hyper speeds fast. So I know that the fish won't actually swallow them and and you know, injure themselves. So I've seen patterns like that that have come along that are controversial but very effective. Uh, probably for lakes, by far my favorite pattern is one that I've kind of developed, the vampire leech. Uh, oh, is that that's got your name on it? Yeah, that that one actually I developed. Uh, I, it's basically as a result of my travels. Uh, when I went to England, um, I purchased some material that was called vampire vippy. It was made by Celtic Flycraft. And uh, when I tied up the first pattern with that, I kind of played around with some of our local patterns and some of the uh, patterns I'd seen in the UK. Uh, it's very similar to Wooly Bugger, but it's using uh, UV material. It's using a fritz rather than a, a hackle on it. And then just the tail, too, I use the traditional one I tie. It has rabbit uh, strip instead of uh, marabou for the tail. And then just adding a fluorescent bead to it, too. So it, it's kind of like a, a woolly bugger on steroids, in a sense. But, uh, again, I, I didn't really necessarily name it that name at the start. But uh, what happens is as you fish at competitions, especially with teammates, we kind of make code names up for flies so that when you're talking and amongst other people, they have no idea what you're talking about. So knowing that fly was tied with Vampire Vippy, I just called it the vampire leech and the name stuck with it. Um, so <laughs> uh, the first time I ever used that in a competition actually was in Mont Tremblant on a river 
And the controller I had was actually a local guide. And even though I was fishing with three flies, I caught uh, 12 fish that I landed, and every single one came to the vampire leech. And he, he was just more excited each time to see which fly was catching. But when uh, when he saw that fly at the end of it, he, he basically had to have as many as I could give him out of my vest at that time. But uh, after that, every nationals, more and more people saw it because it works great in rivers and in lakes. Uh, but nowadays, if you go to any nationals or any Canadian championship, even in the U.S. now, uh, you'll see every competitor uh, has got a row or two, or some of them have boxes of the vampire leech now. You're preaching to the choir there, because i got to tell you, uh, the last four or five years, uh, my fishing buddy that I usually head out with and, and myself, that's kind of our, you know, it's our favorite pattern. I actually did not realize that you uh, you started that. Yeah. No. Nice work. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but I know even the U.S., they use it down there. Team USA renamed it the Blank Saver. Uh, and that goes back to uh, Cam Chiaffi at the World Championships for the Youths. Uh, he was in a in a boat, and he was uh, set up to become the world champion for the youth uh, division. And uh, he needed one more fish on this venue, and he hadn't caught a fish yet. So I guess he pulled out the vampire leech with less than half hour to go and tied it on, and he caught it, caught his fish that made him the world champion on the vampire leech. So uh, some of the Americans named it the blank saver because it saved him from the blank that day. So and, and it just has proved to be so effective that they do call it a blank saver, just because they know you can use a vampire leech to avoid the blank. Well, I got to I I got to confess too the as far as variations on a theme that pattern that you came up with uh, I've put that on just about every single fly I tie just go with a little bit of a black and kind of a blue and even even with that uh, chartreuse bead it's just killer. Yeah, a great version of it beyond the black and chartreuse combinations go olive and a red bead that that's almost as effective. Mm. It just depends on the depth. When I fish greater depths, I want to try to use darker patterns or patterns that uh, will reflect whatever light wavelengths are reaching those depths. So uh, fluorescent and UV materials, that kind of gives you that added benefit of more uh, visibility to the fish. Yeah, I don't know what it is about purple and black, but it sure seems to get the fish's attention. It does, you know, and if you talk to anyone who on the West Coast or maybe out in your Great Lakes, um, you, you find that a lot of deep sea fishermen love purples and violets and blacks or even white, but it all comes down to what wavelengths can reach, light wavelengths can reach the greater depths. Uh, of course, as you know, and you probably heard from other guests, red is the first color to disappear, but by using a fluorescent material combined with that color it increases the depth and also another thing that's important to remember with color choices is that uh, a lot of people get hung up on the depth aspect of how far the wavelengths can penetrate to but it also works uh, horizontally so by having a pattern that's more visible with fluorescent materials black of course is not a color but it absorbs late wavelengths so it provides contrast uh, but by having them with fluorescent or uv in the materials it allows the fish to see at greater distances horizontally. So again, it improves your visibility to fish that might not be as close to your presentation as you would have hoped. So it can draw them in. So it's key to understand how a fish see and what sort of materials can improve the visibility of what you're fishing in the waters to them too. Well, that uh, that speaks to the uh, booby pattern too that's been real successful the past few years, and that's that black and purple with the chartreuse. I mean, it's very similar look to the vampire, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, and uh, the booby pattern. You know, a lot of people say it looks like nothing, but to be honest, the way I tie it, my most effective version of the booby looks an awful lot like uh, immature uh, 
dragonfly nymph uh, being the big eyes. If you've seen uh, like the darners or the dams or the, the darners or the gonfus, but more so the darner dragonfly nymphs. Uh, if you tie a booby in darker colors uh, with the black eyes on it, 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 in my opinion, it's probably one of the better imitations of a, a dragonfly nymph um, that, that, that I have in my box anyways. Well, I think sometimes we look as as anglers, we get too specific, you know. Rather than having something suggest something, we want to make it really imitated, and and then we lose something, don't we? I agree totally. Uh, you know, and some some of the anglers get so caught up in the number of wraps of the ribs or segmentation of the body, and it's got to be exact. Or but I honestly don't think the fish are going to key in that much differently. But uh, there are people that really. In some sense, even when they write magazine articles or books or do videos, they, they want to complicate it. They want to make it sound more sophisticated, that, that they're such a precise and imitative tire, that that's what makes a difference. But I honestly don't think so. You're probably like me. You've had patterns that have been chewed up by fish. And the more chewed up they are, the better they produce. <laughs> so, oh, absolutely. You know, so it's sort of a testimony right there that the fish aren't that specific on it. I mean... The eyesight of the trout is, is different than, than our eyesight, obviously. But, I mean, in the case of, of our rods and cones and our ability to see, uh, what we see is different than what fish see. But um, their sort of mix of rods to cones makes it more difficult for them to, to see uh, the imagery that we can see, the precision. Mm-hmm. But they, their vision is more set up for them to notice movement of, of things in the water in small little details, but they're not necessarily looking for uh, that exact segmentation that people want or, or exact tapering. There are times, that being said, that fish do key in on a certain color, a certain pattern, uh, and they can get very fussy. And, and unless you've got something that's a spot on imitation, you're not going to have any luck. But for the most part, that's not the majority of what we encounter as fly fishers. So I, I think it's more important to focus on what the majority is rather than that little odd oddity that's going to really require that. So I do have imitative patterns that are tied for very precise imitations. But for the most part, if you looked at my competition or my recreational box when I'm on a lake or a river, they're not that exact. And in my opinion, they'll catch as well, if not better, than what some other people are using because you've added different components to your pattern to make it more visual uh appealing or more attractive or just plain and simple the fish can see it because it stands out a bit well and how how much does movement speak to things too like whether it's rabbit strips or marabou trying to imitate say like a damsel in a, on a still water just that wriggling action that you really can't get from from any man-made material no you know and, and that's that's one thing that i've noticed too i've been to other seminars and seen videos and read books and all the progression as a fly fisher of trying to absorb as much knowledge as i could but i kind of chuckle because Sometimes you'll hear people talk about fishing a damselfly because if you've ever seen them swim in the water, they're just incredible, the wiggling motion to them. But you'll you'll hear the the author or the person who's given the presentation will talk about wiggling your rod tip so that you're imitating it. But that doesn't translate. It doesn't transmit down to the pattern. The pattern, if anything, might just might jerk a bit, but it doesn't really go across. It's the same thing with the uh, boobies or agonfus dragonfly patterns. Uh, some of the some of the people that do presentations will tell you to you know pause and it'll rise and then strip and it'll drop. Uh, if you ever watch it in the water, and I've I've gone swimming and with masks on and watched as my kids retrieve our friends retrieve flies in the water, they don't do that. 
if you pause, it's just going to stay sort of neutral and buoyant. They don't rise and dip. So again, a lot of times, I think that people would learn to appreciate what they're doing a bit better if they could see more underwater photography or even swim with a pattern to watch and see how it moves in the water because it's quite an eye-opener to, to see what's really going on down below. What about fish and coronamids or, or midges? When when sometimes you, you, you give them just a little bit of movement and the fish are all over it, sometimes they want it totally static. I, I can never figure that out. Yeah, you know, you're you're right with that too because there are times um, I've fished even in some competitions against anglers that are allowed to use indicators and split shot and such, and and you just can't keep up with them. They're they're just more effective at certain times, but not for the most part. But for, for little windows of opportunity, they can outfish you with a static presentation rather than something moving. Uh, but, you know, myself, uh, that's how I started out fly fishing, was learning how to fish chronomids and did that for many years. Uh, as painfully slow as it can be to sit and watch an indicator, it can be highly effective at times. But I think one of the things that, that a lot of people don't really realizes importance of is using fluorocarbon um when they're fishing chronomids especially uh fish will will swim up to it if it's just a completely static presentation it's key that you have as light of a tippet as you you can uh, manage with the size of the fish but also using fluorocarbon uh one thing that i always talk about in my seminars is that you know for these companies and people to promote fluorocarbon as being invisible it's not the better term is less visible uh that that's more realistic one of the coaches that i had told me a story about back in england that they had uh, two ponds that the fish would swim back and forth between so they actually did an experiment where they took uh, several different brands of fluorocarbon and copolymers or nylon as we call it and they suspended little weights below it over a bridge and they had uh, the club members sit there and watch and kind of monitor which which ones moved or or got bumped so they could tell which ones fish were swimming into so they'd know which one was less visible. Well, they did this over a f- period of a few days, and not a single fish bumped into any of them. So, again, they can see them all. <laughs> so, so, I mean, for these companies to try to <clears throat> promote it, that's just a bit of, uh, you know, the snake oil or, or just sort of promoting their product, but... I think the key with it is to use something that is as light and thin that has a greater breaking strength so that you're not going to risk losing fish. But trying to impart motion into any fly, whether it's a river or a lake, the thinner you use, the more ability it has for the the pattern to actually move. Um, Again, with chronomids, it's ideal if you have a little bit of a riffle or a wind so that the wave action even is causing it to kind of minutely jig in the water That'll attract the fish too, but but again, they have a lot of an op, a lot of opportunity to visually inspect your fly. So, uh, key is to have a less less visual uh, aspect as far as what you're using for your tippet. You've been listening to part one of a two part episode with Todd Oshi. Todd's the president of Fly Fishing Canada, competitive fly fisher, has spent a lot of time fishing all over the world um, at Canada's national fly fishing team since uh, 2005. We'll have more on episode two next time around. Thanks for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you would like to hear on the show. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.